Hey ho, Tudor minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 21 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We're amazed and inspired to be reaching thousands of Tudor minded people from all over the world. We love listeners who love a story and who also love history. You are our kind of people. We've had such an amazing time researching and imagining this project and now sharing it with all of you. It's it's really a pleasure. So if you're enjoying it, support us digitally. Buy me a coffee. Yes, buy me a coffee as well. Type in buy me a coffee as one word and then Tudor Time Machine into Google and you can find our page or the shop button on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page will also take you to buymeacoffee.com. As a bonus gift at any level, we're going- For any cups of coffee. For any cups of coffee. One or a hundred. Yes, we're gonna send you our new brainchild. It's a Tudor Time Machine Behind the Headlines podcast. Jessica will read a current Tudor news story and then we'll discuss it in depth, whether it's debunking some old fake news that keeps being recycled or delving into a worthy new headline. So we're looking forward to having some great guests join in on our discussions on these special bonus episodes. So please support us on Buy Me A Coffee and get in on this new fun. At this point in our story, Constance is bound for Whitehall. She needs that piece of expensive black work lace to bribe her way back into Lady Lee's. And to search that desk of Wyatt's. Yes. And after the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jessie. Chapter 21, The Palace of Whitehall, in which Constance plays the poet. There was quite a commotion when Constance arrived at the water stairs at Whitehall. The shouts of, Hold! Hold! stuck her to her seat in the boat, and she prepared to be patient. Wynne unwrapped a bit of bread to nibble on. There were vessels overwhelming the dock, and Constance would have to wait to disembark. She looked up to the walls of the great palace of Whitehall. She remembered the thrill when she first saw them, how Mary Howard had jumped up and down to meet her and made a friend of her without question. Constance looked on at the ridiculous theatricality with which the Earl of Rutland pushed through the band on the stairs, his face so open it was unsettling. His man helped her out of the boat, depositing her directly before the flushed Earl. I noted you in the crush, mistress. I have made them all wait so I may speak with you. Sweet dependability. You follow me to court to tell me that my mistress wrote wondrously and lengthily? There was nothing to be gained by checking the Earl's assumption. He was consumed by his love affair and presumed she shared his preoccupation. In fact, she had been much relieved to have her duty as messenger ended during her last exchange with Mistress St. John. The girl had said she would send a response to Wyatt's poem directly to Rutland, adding that Constance should trouble herself no more. Did you receive Mistress St. John's letter? She asked him. She sent it herself? Indeed, my lord. She said I need not be go-between. Do you know where she sent it? He looked darkly at his mates who were loitering behind him, their breath freezing in the frigid air. One of those foul lads swiped it. Mistress St. John obsesses my thoughts. If I cannot be close with her, I will do myself harm. Alarmed, Constance looked up into his face and saw he meant what he said. Some men felt so very deeply, like Sir Thomas Wyatt. I will go to her myself, Rutland declared. You should not, my lord. She urges against it. 
I am desperate. Constance cast about for a more formidable excuse. I believe she has been taken ill. Is it a fever? Rutland asked, his face becoming a panic. I must go to her. I will disguise myself as an apothecary. You, Mistress Constance, will meet me by the door of Bedford House to let me in. Oh, sir, she is not very ill, only tired from worry. If you are caught, you will compromise her. The Queen will be told. It will be no answer for you. Let me go to her. Perhaps this anguish is for nothing. The letter has gone astray and will be found with little trouble. You are the great rock at Gibraltar, Mistress Constance. You will send it soon? Sir, I see the danger in leaving you to dangle. Constance felt the many eyes on her. All would stand in the cold waiting until Rutland moved everything along. She stepped back and he seemed to understand that there had been enough talk between them. Bridget Skipworth, after pretending not to remember what she owed, gave up the beautiful blackwork with little grace. After a hasty exchange of gossip with Mary and Nazareth, Constance walked back along the icy strand, assuring Wynne that rest would be had when they arrived at Bedford House. Making her way through the hallways, Constance was practically run down by Captain Hawkins, who did not even raise an eye. Only his fiendish marmoset riding on his shoulder screeched at her. She hoped man and beast would soon be back at sea, where they belonged. Thomason was out of sorts. Yes, Mistress Constance, what is it now? It will grieve you to know that the Earl of Rutland did not receive your letter. It must have gone astray. Thomason pulled impatiently at her necklace. Mistress Thomason, you can send it now, Constance added to break the silence between them. She would have been happy to leave, but the image of Rutland compelled her to try again. You cannot imagine the Earl's distress at not hearing from you, Mistress. The Earl is so honest. I do not care for his distress. Constance thought she had misheard, but the pursed lips and rolled eyes of Thomason made her reconsider. Were you not delirious with love for him? she asked. My feelings are altered. Tell the Earl to write no more. Constance had given Thomason the benefit of the doubt for the Earl's sake, but this girl was as rotten as she feared. Thomason groused over to her desk, and before Constance had time to arrange herself for a wait, Thomason handed her a note and demanded to be left alone. As she walked back to her chamber, Constance wondered what a missive composed in five seconds could possibly say. Thomason was so sloppy, all of the wax was on one side of the parchment, and it was not properly closed. It was irresponsible not to seal a letter. What if someone happened to drop it on the ground? Oops! La, there it lay, open for her to read. My Lord Rutland, my love for you has died the death that lasts forever. Write no more to your former mistress, Thomason St. John. The river Styx was a warm bath compared to this. Rutland's actions, if confronted with such a thing, would surely be disastrous. He would arrive at Bedford House running amok, or throw himself off London Bridge as a tragic gesture. Thomason had no heart. Constance looked at the measly few lines again. There were softer ways to discourage attention, excuses that could be given to end the affair without hurling Rutland off the edge of self-destruction. The chit Thomason wrote with a common hand. Constance could easily copy such a slant. Yes, she would simply write a letter to Rutland herself to ease the end of love. Love did not need to have its head chopped off. Constance was the only lady-in-waiting at Bedford House who had any ink, and someone had borrowed it. She was relieved to find it on the bedside beside Christina's bed. Most of it had been used, no doubt to pen lovesick notes to the Swedish eagle. Constance sat down to write, holding her quill aloft. She was at a loss. 
How to begin? Dearest Rutland, gentle Rutland, loving Rutland. Gentle Rutland seemed right. She could apologise for an inability to love. No, too simpering. What would Sir Thomas Wyatt say? Even in the end of love, he would find vitality and passion. She opened the Tottles miscellany Rutland had lent her. But all these oaths are vain, so well your eye doth show, who puts your heart to pain. Wyatt liked to use a body part. She would try that. Eyes were impossible. There was far too much good poetry about eyes. Nose? Smelling? Smelling the fear of love? The scent of fear of love? The hound of true love could smell the fear? Oh my, she thought, truly an awful muse. She looked at her hand. Her hand. My hand is so heavy, I know I will smear these sorrowful words, though my hand is not as heavy as my heart. It did not rhyme, but then the Earl would be expecting prose from Thomason. Constance wriggled about in her chair, trying to craft an image for Rutland. He was commanding, like a constable or a sheriff, yet something less earthbound would serve better. Images came and went, but nothing seemed to fit. Men like Thomas Wyatt were able to spill words. That was the poet's nature. To let a lady down, Wyatt would tell her of her beauty. He would fondle the words so she would barely know she was being dismissed. Rutland must see himself as strong. A hawk. Wyatt liked to use birds. Hawks were very masculine. You are a hawk, a king of the sky. I am but a blue tit. She stopped herself. Blue tit? Awful. She crossed it out, blotted it, and wrote, Tiny wren. Little wrens were so appealing. It was too beautiful an image for the ferret Thomason. Constance wanted to write, You are a hawk, and I am a ferret. You should snatch me up and eat me because I am so unkind. Instead, she wrote, I could never deserve you, my lord. You must love another who will soar as high, like Icarus. Yet you will never be dazzled by the sun. You will fly to it, for that is your just deserts. Oh, farewell, my mighty hawk. She blew on the page to dry the ink. The tone was right. It was longer than any other letter Thomason had sent. But this was Finney, and Constance was sure that Rutland would be fooled. She sealed it, well this time, and went down to find the postboy. A heavy rope of pearls flew through the open door, landing with a smack near Constance's feet. Then a possessed Princess Cecilia crossed the threshold, balancing the baby Edward Fortuna in her outstretched arms. Elin blew through the door behind, followed by the stampeding ladies. Taking refuge against a wall, Constance stopped Brigitta. Brigitta, what scene is this? The princess seized a necklace that the Marquis of Northampton gave Elin. Tis true. The princess says that Elin looks only to her own gain. She must pay for her passage to this country. Constance's stomach flipped as the babe danced, laughing through the air as he passed into the arms of his nurse. Unburdened, Cecilia scooped up the pearls and held them just out of reach of the tearing Elin. The young girl choked something in Swedish, and at Cecilia's response, each of the ladies flinched. Elin ran from the room with the frothing Cecilia at her heels and the mob pursuing. Constance appealed to Brigitta, who happily translated. Elin said that the princess had encouraged her in her match with the Marquis, and then her grace said, Yes, because he paid me to say so, now he does not pay. 
Elin insisted that Northampton loves her, and the princess said it was only because she bore a resemblance to the man's dead wife, and that was only a passing resemblance because the dead wife was much more clever. Brigitte tugged at Constance. Let us go after. But the princess reappeared, cloaked, with Elin crawling and kissing at the hem of her royal skirt. Dorodai lifted Elin away as Cecilia sailed out the door. Where did she go? Constance asked Dorodai. To Lombard Street, to pawn the necklace, Dorodai said. The princess goes herself on such an errand? Indeed. She goes incognitus. My lady would not trust any of us to drive a good enough bargain. Only weeks ago this behavior of Cecilia's would have unsettled her, Constance reflected. Now it was unremarkable. She went to rouse the postboy. She must get the letter off to Rutland before she lost her nerve. Constance is on the move in this chapter, and it's all new experiences for her. Designing a stratagem, forging a letter, and fooling a young nobleman. Not things she would have ever dreamed of at home. She needs to manage Mr. Hothead Rutland before he flies off the handle. He's charming, but very self-involved. Like so many people in love. He just presumes Constance is as invested in his love affair as he is. That's pretty common. Being in love is so exciting for you, but it can be very tedious for your pals. Oh my god, yes. And <laughs> Rutland can't imagine Constance has anything else on her mind but his crush. At the opening of this chapter, he's sure Constance has come all the way to Whitehall just to find him, and that she's basically sitting in traffic at the water stairs on his account. Yes, and he wants to talk to her, so he just pushes his way on through. He does not have to wait. He is Mr. Privilege. He cannot imagine that things are harder for Constance than they are for him. His own boat with all his servants in livery? It would just be ushered to the front of the line for the water stairs. He wouldn't have to wait. It's like Prince Harry driving up to a restaurant in a Bentley in Los Angeles. I think that in L.A., Harry would be in a Tesla. True, or it's like a big-wig banker who travels around New York City by helicopter and has his or her own landing pad right there on their office building. Uh, then as now, there are different ways of getting around a city, and transport is definitely a class thing. Constance is gentry, but she still has to use the public stairs at Whitehall, because of course the queen used her own privy stairs. These were not permanent stone stairs. They were wooden staircases that could be used at high tide when the causeway along the Thames River was flooded. We've mentioned that the mega-rich had their 16th century McMansions built, facing the Strand, which was a very fashionable street, and backing onto the river so that they could use it for transport. And these lucky folks would have had their own boats. They wouldn't have had to hire one, as Constance does. Queries. 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 <laughs> Uh, I like the use of the H. Yes, and if you all need to spell it, you know that it is W-H. <laughs> Queries, a type of rowboat, were the taxis of the 16th century in London. And some were decked out with upholstery and had plush seats, and of course, some were very basic. And these boats for public hire on the river came in different sizes. The wherry, the wherry, seated two, and there were other boats that could carry five. And these vessels could be hired at designated areas along the river, Kind of like, you know, getting a taxi at a taxi stand. Do you think they had a rideshare? 
Could you save money if you shared your wherry with a stranger? I guess so. The fares were regulated by the city government, so you could travel alone. But presumably, you'd have to hire the whole boat, and it sat five, so maybe you had to pay for every seat unless you went with other people. And some wherries were more expensive than others because of the elaborateness of the seats and things like that. And the time of day you traveled and actually in which direction affected the fare because there was an extra charge for having to row against the tide. That makes sense. It's so much more work to row against the tide. And these wherries were rowed by a single person. Who had very good arms. I think so. And there were larger boats for hire that could transport up to a dozen people. And then there were the barges, which really were like modern-day buses. They held dozens of people and had designated routes along the river that they ran on daily. And those were rowed by about 18 rowers. They must have been huge to have 18 people rowing, plus dozens of passengers. And they called them row barges, which is a very <laughs> literal name. You knew what you were going to get. Yes, and they were 60 to 75 feet. Which is about... 18 to 22 meters. Just did that in your head? Uh, no, I looked it up. <laughs> in America, unfortunately, we're still in feet. And there, but there were terminals where you could get on and off these barges. And in this case, for these barges, the bargeman would wait until he had enough passengers to make the journey worthwhile. So you could be waiting for quite a long time before your barge took off. Unless... Unless you were the queen. Oh, yes, And then you had your own super fabulous royal barge to dominate the river with. (laughs) And It's good to be queen. (laughs) It's good to be queen. And you made everyone else go ashore while you were afloat. And Shakespeare was probably inspired by seeing Elizabeth's magnificent barge on the water when he wrote so beautifully in Antony and Cleopatra. The barge she sat in, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which, to the tune of flutes, kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster, as amorous of their strokes. It's so gorgeous. (laughs) So gorgeous. And I'm sure Shakespeare was inspired by Elizabeth. Because she loved floating around with all her attendants and musicians on show, and it was a pretty common sight to see her. But most people had to cram into these public vessels. It reminds me how in Upstart Crow, the Shakespeare BBC sitcom, that there's a running joke. Shakespeare's always complaining about the transit system. It's funny, and he also complains about the staff, you know, being rude or slow or reckless or late and all that. And there really was a dedicated transit workforce in Elizabethan London. The Company of Thames Watermen was founded by Parliament in 1555. I'm guessing because the situation on the river was just getting too crazy and dangerous with unregulated water traffic. Only members of the Watermen's Company were permitted to transport passengers on the water, and they were forbidden to carry cargo except for luggage and that sort of thing. The Lord Mayor of London had to choose eight watermen every year to oversee the rest of the company and to make sure that the system worked, at least somewhat smoothly. Well, then is now. I mean, people rail against regulations, but when we live together, we need them. Regulation is nothing new, and neither are unions. The company of watermen basically was a union. And undermining the union guy 
is also nothing new. In Elizabethan London, there were constant complaints about cargo boats angering the company of watermen by taking passengers at cut rate, along with you know, their loads of hay or other things they were transporting. Right, like if you took a passenger sitting on top of your wood pile, you know, then they would have to pay less, obviously. And there was also competition among the company for the best places to pick up passengers. Can you imagine them, like, ringing their little bells on the water, like taxi horns blaring all over New York and all over cities? Oh, it was a chaotic scene. There were about 2,000 wherries in business and about... 3,000, let's call them taxi drivers, on the river. Yeah, and they were tough guys, and the boats on the river went every which way. And the managers of the company of watermen finally took to assigning specific watermen to specific water stairs to avoid fights over passengers. (laughs) I wonder if that worked. (laughs) And they also made prohibitions on watermen picking up fares at night and on Sunday mornings before church, but apparently those rules were also broken all the time. And that's why, in the early chapters of Time's Riddle, when she's sneaking to Mass late at night, Constance wonders if her waterman even has a license. And growing up in New York, I have definitely wondered sometimes if my cab driver had a license. And being a waterman must have been a stressful job, like driving a taxi, but with drowning. And you had to be excellent at negotiating the waterway. Sure. A 16th century Londoner addressed that and wrote... Watermen were, quote, very dexterous at steering clear of each other. As they shouted at each other, get out of the way, buddy. <laughs> yeah, or, or something ruder. I mean, these watermen were considered the rudest of all the tradespeople. And, you know, the Elizabethans were famous for their wonderful insults. And another contemporary wrote that at the Westminster Stairs, gentlemen are baited by whole kernels of yelping watermen who are ready to tear you to pieces to have twopence <laughs> rowed out of your purse. Sounds very dangerous, doesn't it? But despite the lack of manners, traveling by water was predominantly for the well-to-do because of these fares. I mean, twopence doesn't sound like much, but to put that into perspective, a laborer in Elizabethan London would make about 10 pounds a year. So each pound was 240 pence because they didn't have 100 to the dollar. And so 10 pounds was about 24,000 pence. So crossing the river a couple of times a day at two pence really added up and became a significant portion of your income. And obviously walking was free, but the roads were uneven and muddy and very narrow and crowded. So it was much slower going and the richer people didn't want to get their clothes dirty. So the Thames is and was an unusual city river. It was a highway for passenger traffic as well as for cargo. And until the 18th century, there was only one bridge across it, London Bridge. Which meant that crossing the river by boat was the practical way to get back and forth from South Bank to the city and to and from the court on the North Bank. This is a river city. London is a river city. It's a, it's a city dominated by the river. A bridge in that spot was first built by the Romans in 43 AD. The Romans were always doing things like building bridges. And when they left England, it fell into disrepair. And it took another invader, William the Conqueror, to rebuild it after the Norman invasion of... 1066. Yes. So I think that the point where London Bridge was built by the Romans, originally, it's it's like one of the narrower parts of the Thames. Yes. So that was probably the ideal place to build the bridge. 
And, you know, William thought it was a good spot, and he loved to build. Uh, he actually built the Tower of London, too. So the wooden bridge that he built had to be rebuilt a number of times. Then, finally, in the 12th century, Henry II had the bridge built out of stone. Right, because William's bridge, I think, was made out of wood. So hen- this this new bridge that Henry II built was incredibly expensive. But Henry was so penitent for the murder of Thomas of Becket that he had a chapel dedicated to Becket built in the center of this bridge. It's strange the things that motivate progress. Henry II had his rival murdered, and then he felt bad. (laughs) And Londoners got a stone bridge, which was state-of-the-art when it was built in 1176. Yeah, I mean, forget being motivated to improve London and the lives of your subjects. Henry was hoping this massive public work would show penitence for Becket's murder and help him get into heaven when his own time came. Now, if a government official wanted to invest in a big public work so that he could get into heaven, I just, I don't think we would accept that. I just wish they would build something, though, you know, especially in our cities in America for any reason. But, I, you know, I don't think Londoners worried about the king's motive. They were probably just happy to have a new bridge. And in the medieval period, building bridges as well as building churches was an act of piety. So Henry II got double piety points for his bridge, and the chapel was on there. The chapel to Becket became the starting point of the pilgrimage to Canterbury Cathedral, and the bridge stood for almost 600 years. That's amazing. I know. Shops and houses were built right on the bridge itself. Insane. That is completely crazy. By the Tudor period, there were over 200 buildings on London Bridge. Oh my God, that seems insane to me. And imagine all that added stress on the supports of this bridge, not to mention blocking the way. Londoners complained that it could take over an hour to cross London Bridge, and it was only about 900 feet long and only about 20 feet wide. Or 275 meters long (laughs) and 7 meters wide and I will say that (laughs) is a lot of pedestrian traffic. You know I read that some of the buildings were 7 stories high and built so that they jutted out over the water on one (laughs) side. So scary. And overhung the bridge street on the other side and so it sort of made a dark tunnel. That sounds terrifying. I mean for my not so securely built bedroom to hang over the water or to walk under it on the other side. And there were latrines that also overhung the water for natural flushing. So these overhanging houses made this sort of dark tunnel you had to walk through with people, carts, and wagons all vying for room. And I'm not sure how high the bridge was on the sides, but I have to imagine that, you know, things fell off quite often. Oh, I'm sure. And if that's not scary enough, the heads of executed traitors were stuck on pikes and displayed at the south gatehouse. The heads would be dipped into tar to keep them from being destroyed too fast by the elements. We want to preserve those. (laughs) So they could terrify people for even longer. Right. I mean, maybe you couldn't keep up with your, your traitor executions with how many heads you needed to scare people with on the bridge. And maybe the tar also kept these heads from smelling quite so nauseating. 
Food was sold in the shops along the bridge. Maybe the odor of tar masked the decaying trader head so a person could enjoy her meat pie and glass of ale as she had it on this uh, luxurious bridge. Actually, though, the bridge was considered a healthy place to live because of the breeze from the river. But it sounds just chaotic and tight. And you can imagine if the bridge was the healthy place to live, Imagine the conditions in the rest of the city. That's true. That's really true. <laughs> if, if that was the that was the you know this the the healthy place, but I mean, still, it was probably safer to go over the bridge on London Bridge than it was to go under the bridge by boat, because it was built with nineteen irregularly spaced narrow arches that had massively wide bases, so the flow of the river was restricted. And sometimes there could be a difference in depth of six feet between one side of the bridge and the other. There was a huge drop-off, and that was called shooting the rapids. And people did do it, but it was insanely dangerous, and many people drowned trying to do it. Because these boats were wooden, and they were not light and flexible. They weren't rubber. It wasn't white water rafting. <laughs> as fun as that sounds. <laughs> but dangerous or not, the river was the central way to get around London. So there's a fantastic interactive map of London online. It's from 1561 from a woodcut. It's called the August map. And you can see London Bridge. You can see the the arches and how big these bases were. And you can see the whole sweep of London. It's a great map because it even shows the water stairs that we've been talking about and the details. And all the streets and neighborhoods are marked with the names that they had. And actually many of the names are still the same. Yes, and the names of streets and the neighborhoods were usually determined by the trade that went on there. So they're named, again, very literally, Beer Lane, Bread Street, Poultry Street, Pissing Alley. Oh, I know, but at least you <laughs> Latrine <knew>. Lane. <laughs> exactly, but at least you knew what you were getting into if you went there. There was one called Love Lane. Oh. I don't know quite. Uh, I don't know if it was awe or a lot of prostitution, but oh right. Anyway, <laughs> that's why at the end of this chapter we see Cecilia is going to Lombard Street because that's the place in 16th century London that you want to go to if you want to pawn a necklace. Lombard Street was the banking center of London. It still is. It's one of the streets that make up the city, as Londoners call their banking area. The street got its name from people synonymous with medieval and Tudor commerce, the Lombards. And they were goldsmiths and early bankers from the Lombardy region of Italy. So these enterprising Lombards set up shop in England and in other European cities. And most European cities had and still have a Lombard Street. Actually, some American cities do, too. In Ukrainian, Russian, and Polish, the name for a pawn shop is still Lombard. And the word bank originates from the bankos, or benches, that the Lombards sat on in the marketplace to do their work, to do their banking business. So, like, is the Russian reality show called, like, Lombard Kings instead of <laughs> Pawn Kings? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. So these Lombards were unfortunately encouraged to settle in England by Edward I in the 13th century for a really horrible reason. Yes, it was for the expulsion of the Jewish people from England in 1290. Yes. 
So Jewish people had been living in England since the Norman Conquest when William the Conqueror invited them to live there, mainly to provide money lending services. Of course, at this time in most of Europe and England, Jewish people were denied citizenship. They were barred from joining guilds. They were barred from holding office or being in the military. So money lending was one of the only ways that they could make a living and survive. Yes, and charging interest on a loan was prohibited by both the Christian and Jewish orthodoxy, but there was no prohibition on Jewish people lending to Christian people for profit or for Christian people lending to Jewish people for profit. So because they were not citizens, the Jewish people, and this is very wrong, were considered the property of the monarch. Right, and as long as the monarchs chose to protect them, they were able to live in England, despite hideous anti-Semitism, which, you know, occurred all over Europe, because to harm the king's finger-quote property was a serious offense. But the crown was able to tax these non-citizens at a very high rate without having to go through parliament. Which you usually, the king usually would in England have to go through parliament to tax the populace. Yes. And so to cover these taxes that were forced on them by the king, the lenders then charged higher interests. So anti-Semitic Christian people were then happy to blame the Jewish people for these rates. And of course, not the king. Right. And so indebted nobles became more and more violent towards the Jewish people. And under pressure from his subjects, Edward I banned Jewish people from money lending and actually forced them to wear yellow badges to identify themselves. Oh, it's so horrible. So in 1290, Edward was in massive debt because of his foreign wars. Oh, my God. (laughs) These guys are always in debt because of their foreign wars. I know. And he needed to raise a huge tax to pay for it on... So he wanted to tax the English citizens. Right, and he had to go through Parliament because they were citizens. So the noblemen in Parliament made a deal with Edward. If he expelled the Jewish people from England, they would agree to a massive tax on the country. I wonder if the expulsion wiped out any of the debt the nobles might have had to the Jewish people who lent the money. I'm not sure about that, but it really makes sense. And that would be all the more reason for the nobles in Parliament to want them expelled so they wouldn't have to pay them back. And Jewish people were unable to live in England legally for almost 400 years after that. We talk so much about the expulsion of the Jewish people from Spain, but it was just as bad in England. It's unbelievable. And it was actually Oliver Cromwell, who is a contentious figure himself, who allowed them to enter England in the 1650s after the Civil War, but they were still denied citizenship. It's so unfair. Anyway, in 1290, Edward I expelled the Jewish people and then invited the Lombards to fill the money-lending vacuum. So the whole thing makes no sense to me at all because, you know, whatever. But clearly it was just anti-Semitism. Absolutely. But the Lombard banking system got past the church's prohibitions on charging interest because it was based technically in pawnbroking. In other words, the Lombards were not technically charging interest, but allowing people to borrow against collateral. 
they still managed to make huge profits. Surprise, surprise. And they hid charging interest in inventive bookkeeping. Inventive bookkeeping. That is now. It's true. (laughs) Yep. These books were secret, and they were kept within families. Now they're just kept within within companies, right? (laughs) Within, like... um, Accounting companies. These books were secret and kept within the families. And as goldsmiths, Lombards also exchanged currency at very good rates for themselves. Right. And again, there was not much competition because, Mm -hmm. you know, exchanging money and having different currencies was not something that most people dealt with. After the Reformation, Henry VIII allowed the practice of charging interest of up to 10% because he wanted English people to be able to make the same kind of profits that the Lombards were making. And by 1565, Englishmen had followed the example of these Lombards, and actually Sir Thomas Grisham, who was one of Elizabeth's main advisors, opened the Royal Exchange where merchants and bankers could gather and conduct business. Modern English banking was born. Indeed. So Cecilia is off to Lombard Street, And let's hope she gets a stash of cash for that necklace because she needs it. She is running out of money, and she's also running out of people who are willing to lend money to her. So join us next time when Constance and Philomena return to Henry Lee's fancy home on the Strand, and they finally get to search that desk of Thomas Wyatt's. Let's see what's inside. And if you're enjoying this podcast, tell a friend and buy me a coffee. Yes, buy me a coffee. Type in buy me a coffee as one word and then Tudor Time Machine into your search engine and you can find our page. Or the shop button on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page will also take you directly to the Buy Me a Coffee page. As a bonus gift for your support at any level, we'll send you our new Tudor Time Machine Behind the Headlines podcast. I'll read a current Tudor news story and then we'll discuss it in depth. We'll debunk some fake news or we'll... we'll delve into a worthy headline and we will have some exciting guests we really appreciate your support all our gratitude for listening and remember to listen next time for more times riddle and more tutor minded talk Bye.